If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Saks.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. <laughs> Well, the body was open not just to the vagaries of the seasons, but also things like the motion of the planets above us. You know, it's, it's a sort of world system which puts man at its centre. That was Jack Hartnell talking about how the body was viewed in the Middle Ages. Listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. We're the UK's best selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History Magazine. In today's episode, you'll hear from Jack Hartnell an art historian based at the University of East Anglia. Jack has just published a book entitled Medieval Bodies, which looks at many aspects of how people in this period viewed their physical selves. Our staff writer, Ellie Cawthorne, met up with Jack at the Wellcome Collection in London to find out more. 
so I'm at the Welcome Collection in London with Jack Hartnell. Hi, Jack. Hi there. Um, and so you're the author of a new book, Medieval Bodies, which looks at some of the fascinating, unexpected, and, and to be honest, sometimes quite bizarre ways that bodies were viewed in the medieval world. So you look at Western Europe, the Islamic world, and Byzantium, and you break down chapter by chapter a body part and how it was viewed. Um, so, to start off, Jack, if me and you were transported back to medieval Europe, mm. what would we really need to know in order to understand how our bodies worked? Mm, that's a really good question. I guess the first thing, and one of the things that I'm trying to get across to people when uh, they, they're kind of reading the book, is that approaches to the body in the Middle Ages are first very varied, okay? We're talking about an enormous span of time, potentially, you know, from the end of the Roman Empire all the way through to what we might call the Renaissance, so the best part of a thousand years, a whole, you know, as many cultures almost uh, at work in and amongst those years in different parts of my work focuses around the Mediterranean and in Europe in particular. So uh, the answer could be lots of different things. But what's really great about the material, and hopefully one of the things I've tried to sort of capture from it, is that there are some things which we would recognise instantly. Um, people would, in many ways, uh, be wearing quite different styles of clothing, but they would probably, their bodies would physically kind of be very, very similar to ours. We have this slight stereotype, don't we, of kind of tiny medieval people walking around um, and kind of, you know, these probably are quite stupid people, you know, couldn't be further from the case. So um, there'll be lots of similarities, but at the same time, there'll be some extremely dramatic differences in how the body was understood in a number of different spheres. And you talked about how the book takes the kind of a body as its structure, kind of literary skeleton. So from the head all the way down through the, the kind of sensations of the face, skin, bone, heart, stomach, genitals and feet. And that's actually taken from how some later European medieval authors would have written about the body. Uh, their treatises, which would kind of tell us a little bit about various cures that they were uh, engaged in, in kind of discussing and debating, might begin with, uh, you know... Um, details of the head and baldness and headache and uh, eye strain, all the way down to cures of the feet. So a kind of structure that we are familiar with. We specialise our medicine today, don't we, by different body parts and in different ways. So um, it's this constant backwards and forwards of sameness and difference. I guess the main difference, if we wanted to talk about differences, is really the basis on which these bodies were thought to function fundamentally how they were constructed and, and kind of construed. Um, so uh, in the medical sphere, which is very diverse across this period, both you know, extremely well-trained university physicians steeped in ancient knowledge through to much more uh, kind of empirically minded, manual um, uh, kind of um, uh, medics, surgeons, for example, trained in a very different way, actually, to how our own surgeons are trained today. Um, so these individuals would all have a kind of received wisdom about the body from the ancient Greek and Roman world, channeled in many ways through Arabic sources um, from the 7th, 8th century, really, onwards, back into Europe. So I'm just thinking here in particular about Europe. Uh, which would have thought about the body as actually being far more open and porous, I guess is the word that a lot of historians of medicine would use, than our own. So we think of ourselves as this sort of closed 
circuit in a way that maybe, yes, we get sort of hot and cold depending on the temperature, but things from the outside don't really get in. And if they do, it's a bad thing. Right? It's about bacteria, viruses, invasion, negativity. But I think in the Middle Ages, you know, the, the Greco-Roman world framed the body as part of a much larger system of natural philosophy, made up of the same constitutive elements. And as a result, the body was open not just to the vagaries of the seasons, but also things like the motion of the planets above us. You know, it's, it's a sort of world system which puts man at its centre. We actually are aware of these kind of things. We have, you know, these kind of um, astrological uh, kind of dictums out in newspapers every day, but we don't view them in the same uh, kind of serious and potentially life-changing way, uh, medically at least, as what we see as a more sort of proper scientific medicine of our own. So one of the theories that recurs again and again through the book is that of the four humours. Um, perhaps you could just explain to us a bit about what that constituted. Sure. So again, this is a theory that um, begins in the ancient Greek world with a number of writers um, who we refer to as kind of the Hippocratic corpus. So um, a group of writings that are associated, we think, with this figure, Hippocrates of Kos, um, who uh, really espoused, as I said, a natural philosophy, which conceived of the world as being construed, or everything in the world, as being construed uh, of different combinations of four basic elements, so earth, water, air, and fire. And that these elements themselves have different properties, different levels of hotness or coldness, dryness and wetness. It gets quite technical. But the basic uh, conception of the humours is that they are these sort of viscous internal elements that have the same kind of makeup as the rest of the world around them. It's basically the way the body is constructed in the same natural philosophical mode. And as a result, the body can be both influenced by what's happening outside humorally and, and kind of elementally, but also can be changed internally. And the big thing in terms of thinking about uh, humoral theory, especially towards the end of the Middle Ages, in fact, throughout most of the Middle Ages, is that the body needs to be in balance. These natural humors, which might be constituted quite differently depending on someone's age or sex or sometimes even kind of social standing, um, needed to be kept in the appropriate balance for one's person. And as a result, a lot of medicine, especially physicianship, so that kind of learned university medicine that I was talking about, seeks to make sure the body is kept in balance. And uh, a physician's job might be to try and read some of those internal um, symptoms and problems through the external, various external signs, a racing pulse, a kind of heat of the body if someone's in a fever, uh, the urine, reading of the urine is a kind of key indicator of what's what's happening. So actually, urine's a really good example because it's the kind of thing that we look back and think, oh my God, people, you know, physicians looked at um, uh, smelts, in some cases even tasted people's urine, sounds absolutely crazy to us. And yet we have to remember that that rather weird quirk, is part of a much larger, much more complicated, extremely rich um, philosophical medical discourse. And actually, you know, this idea of balance, which is at the core of this sort of humoral medicine, is not a million miles away from how we 
think about our bodies today. I mean, bear in mind, yeah, this is obviously a millennia, millennium before x-rays, before kind of detailed investigations of the body's interior, before a kind of bacterial and microscopic understanding of disease and of the cells of the body. So you've got to try and do something. And we talk all the time, don't we, today, about uh, if we're feeling a bit off balance, you know, we're feeling a bit off kilter, our body's not quite right. We get that slightly uneasy sensation when we're ill that we're somehow the sort of machi machine of the body. It's not quite attuned. And actually, I think that's kind of a, a slightly strange but nonetheless sensible logic to this, to this system. And it spawns all sorts of really interesting practices across the medical spectrum. I think that point you make about um, seemingly crazy cures actually having a really logical basis leads quite nicely into something else I wanted to ask about, which mm. was um, bloodletting. Mm. Because again, that's a thing, a practice that carried on for many years after medieval times um, that now we look on and think, what on earth could, have they, could they have been thinking? But mm. that really had quite a logical basis in uh, medieval medical theory. Yeah, absolutely. Not only was the blood one of the four humours, alongside uh, two types of bile and phlegm, but it also carried within it all of the humours. And so if someone was conceived in this very sensible, kind of rational, well-authenticated you know, system, this is an authoritative system, it stretches back by the, you know, even by the year kind of 600, stretches back a good thousand years, and people have been writing and thinking and talking about, you know, this is a serious paradigm that's extremely hard to step out of, right? It's a bit like someone postulating today that actually DNA, it doesn't really exist. It's very hard to move outside of the parameters of your time uh, um, convincingly and successfully. Um, but yeah, so to come back to bloodletting, yeah, absolutely this idea that if someone might have a kind of a, a plethora, as it was known, a kind of humoral surplus in a particular way, the body had to be balanced. And letting blood was, was one of those, uh, one of a number of different ways in which that might have been done. So again, seemingly crazy, even sort of torturous kind of uh, approach, but actually very logically founded. And, and we have to, I think, give a great deal of sympathy to the medieval past in this respect. And what's also really interesting for me, you know, as a primarily an art historian and a historian of visual culture, is that all of these things, as well as these kind of ideas, as well as um, giving rise to all of these kind of fascinating medieval medical practices. But they also give rise to an amazing and extremely rich visual culture. So diagrams of how the body needed to be uh, let, or blood needed to be let from the body, uh, tables of different coloured kind of urines, all the way through to a whole sort of different branch of medicine, more surgical medicine, which might have illustrated images of surgical tools which were used for quite sophisticated surgical techniques. You're not just a rich range of... Um, ideas and practices, but also an amazing visual record as well, which is really exciting, I think. You mentioned earlier about um, the body being porous. One of the key influences in this period was religion. I just wonder whether you could talk a bit about um, the role that that played in ideas of the body. Yeah, it's, it's really absolutely key. A useful way, I think, to think about uh, religion in the Middle Ages is to think about, uh, to sort of compare it to how we think about gravity today, right? We don't go around uh, patting ourselves on the back saying, you know, isn't it a good job that Newtonian physics means we don't kind of float off the surface of the Earth? Nice one, you know, nice one, gravity. Well played. Uh, but at the same time, it's a fundamental of how we understand our world. We just go about our daily life and that is, that is how our feet stay on the ground. And in a sense, we could think about religion, um, you know, Islam, Judaism, Christianity, uh, in the Middle Ages is functioning similarly in that it's not necessarily something that everyone might walk around and 
talk about all the time, might not inform everything that everyone does at every waking moment. But what it does do is kind of provide a baseline for how people might understand things like creation, salvation, and indeed medicine really is, is really key. So again, to think about the Western European tradition, you're just as likely in some medieval medical uh, treatises or writings or practices that are described in the sources to hear of someone turning to what we would see as a more scientific cure, i.e. a physician or maybe a kind of surgeon who's going to happily manipulate your body, um, or to religious cures, right? So to visit a healing shrine of a saint for some kind of miraculous intervention, to um, recite kind of more folkloric things as well. So things that aren't directly related to religion, but more to sort of uh, a pre-existing and, you know, superstition that's that's very much alive and and well in our own day, you know, perhaps saying kind of certain phrases. Um, Even we have evidence for little amulets, small healing charms that were written with certain magical words or sometimes the name of the three kings and that were rolled up and maybe worn around the neck to kind of ward off sort of apotropaically ill health. Or, you know, sometimes even we have evidence that they might have rolled these things up and and even swallowed them, you know, internalised that holy word uh, or that kind of um, superstitious word as cure. Um, And that is absolutely not in conflict with a more, quote, scientific unquote medicine as we see it today the two are very much intertwined and in some books we'll find you know one page literally after the other um there's a sense that one's spiritual health and one's physical health are are deeply connected in, in this moment we don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down you may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments that comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone, or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Sax.com. 
So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about the range of different people if you had a problem with your body in medieval um, Europe or the Islamic world that sure. you might visit. There seems to have been a really broad range of people to whom uh, one might turn for some kind of uh, medical aid. The problem is that our, the sources that we can use in this period, which are very disparate uh, for medical history, for art history, for, for kind of visual culture generally, is that um, uh, we can only tell through sources about probably quite a, a, a limited and often quite an elite number of these individuals. So the kind of individuals actually that, that rings some bells when we think about how our own doctors today are trained. So um, we might think about university physicians who might write treatises, which would last throughout the ages and we have them today. But we have to remember that universities at this point, especially in the West, in Europe, are Christian institutions. They only uh, allow men in, men and of often good breeding and good standing. So um, they're going to be quite a limited pool of individuals, certainly far too few of them to deal with all of the medical complaints that huge populations must have had. And these figures also are extremely academic in their approach, right? They are interested in really digging down and sort of um, uh, thinking about and, and rephrasing and synthesizing this classical heritage, okay, from ancient Greece and ancient Rome and, and Arabic sources as well. So these are kind of probably the quite highfalutin top end, the tip of the medical iceberg. But then there's another whole range of individuals who, for various reasons, are often set, especially in medieval Europe, against that more kind of university-trained medicine. And historians of medicine have come to term these people empirics. Um, they're practical uh, workers, surgeons, barber surgeons, apothecaries, so people who would deal with various medicines, uh, midwives, for example. And just to take the example of surgeons, these would have been people who would have been trained not in a university, right? They probably, many of them, would not have been particularly literate, especially in the earlier Middle Ages. Uh, some not literate at all. Their training is physical, right? Think of the, the word surgery, you know, from the Greek, kir urgos, okay, handiwork. It's hands-on work, okay? And these are craftsmen, just as the same as we would turn to a master woodworker, a carpenter to make a, a, a kind of a cabinet, to a painter. So they're trained quite differently. Probably as a result, um, whilst a master surgeon may well have been a very expensive person to turn to, there's probably within those individuals a whole range of different levels to which people of different classes and different means could turn for healing, as well as a whole group of uh, more local, um, of kind of, I guess, I don't want to call them folk healers, because that comes with a kind of slightly difficult modern kind of um, kind of pejorativeness. But actually, you know, people, maybe elderly people in communities, often older women in communities who might have offered some kind of, uh, I guess, more folkloric medical cure. So a real range... And that sounds, again, it's one of those things, it sounds crazy to us that those might have been separated, that, you know, uh, physicians might have worked away on texts and not been very interested in the physical realities of the body, and that surgeons completely separately, often kind of seen as a kind of an, a lower social standing, might have engaged uh, in the ideas of the body completely separately. But again, you know, that does change from the 16th century onwards as, as those two roles start to come closer and closer together. But the separation is still preserved in our own terminology today. Say in the UK, when um, someone you know passes their medical exams, they become a doctor. But when someone then becomes a surgeon, they take the name Mister. Right. So it's that kind of is 
avows that long history of surgery as actually being, you know, not part of this doctoral, learned university world. It's the, our modern terminology today still, still has all of these medieval traces at its root. As you mentioned earlier, you're an art historian and there's some really incredible um, sources that you refer to throughout the book. So um, artefacts, images, paintings, stories as well. I wonder whether you could just highlight a few of them for us. So one of the images that I work on the most, actually, in my academic research is an image that emerges at probably the um, end of the 14th or the beginning of the 15th century, so right at the end of the Middle Ages, in Germany, and it's known as the Wound Man, uh, and it appears in a chapter on, on blood in the, uh, in the book. Because one of the things that surgeons did in this period, they were very concerned with issues of the surface of the skin, stitching wounds, for example, um, and surgeons are often found, some of the most successful ones, associated, say, with the battlefield or with, you know, a kind of trauma medicine, as we might understand it today. And the wound man is this absolutely amazing image. It's kind of as this frontal man. He's almost pretty much always, he appears in probably about 20 manuscripts that we know of. He, uh, he appears sort of with his hands outstretched. Uh, he's naked apart from often this rather strange blue pair of almost like speedos. <laughs> it's quite weird, um, but bear with me. And his body is covered with cuts, bruises, with kind of marks of specific diseases, blistering. Uh, he's got sort of thorns lodged in his foot. He's got all sorts of a club hitting his head, knives and daggers kind of stuck in his body. It's an extremely graphic and, and quite unsettling image. And the reason I like working on this image, again, is because it performs that wonderful flip that the Middle Ages often gives us. Um, on the one hand, we look at something and we think, God, this is gross. God, it was a crazy sort of time in which people knew nothing and had no real kind of, uh, you know, sensible engagement. But if you look a little bit closer, every single one of those wounds, weapons, um, you know, there's sometimes this little scorpion uh, stinging his toe or a dog biting his leg, these kind of images of accident are numbered. And on the following pages are a long list of different cures written, we think, originally or at least taken from the work of a surgeon called Ortolf von Bayerland, tells the surgeon how they might go about trying to cure each of those individual diseases. So it's kind of like this amazing table of contents. And how these images were used, we don't really know. Were they really something that a surgeon constantly returned to? Well, they're very expensive to make, very beautiful things. So maybe this was more about the sort of showing off the prowess of surgery. Maybe this kind of image, in fact, was the equivalent of a white coat. You know, today we trust someone in a white coat because that's their credentials. They've got up on their wall their certificates of their kind of training. Great, you know, we trust them. Maybe having a, a kind of dense book filled with these kind of seemingly uh, graphic, impressive uh, objects, you know, images and objects might have functioned in a similar way to kind of inspire trust. So maybe it's something actually not for the doctor to use, but for the patient. So, you know, it's very tantalising. We don't know a lot about this, the way the images were used in this sense. Uh, was it used to teach? You know, was it used from one, to pass information from one surgeon to another? Almost certainly at some point that, that would have happened. So actually you'll find the images and text as well work their way into all sorts of different realms of, of medicine and, and visual culture in, in the Middle Ages, you know, to the promotion of the body and ideas of cure um, and, you know, actually some quite subtle and quite personal interactions between doctor and patient potentially as well. One of the most... I'm going to have to ask you how to pronounce yeah. that. I was going to ask about this guy, Bleff. 
The Blemier. Blemier. The Blemier of the tribe. Okay. So one of the most interesting images um, I found, anyway, was um, an image of the Blemier, which was um, perceived to be a headless African tribe. So yeah. it appears on the front of the book and in your chapter on the head. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a, a little bit about those images and what they might tell us about understandings of the head and its purpose, but also understandings of race and um, the outer world and everything like that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the Blemier are a really interesting kind of uh, example of a series of... um, what have become known as the as monstrous races, because these different supposed races of all strange shapes and sizes that live in this vast and largely unrecorded continent of Africa. Um, some have the head of a dog, uh, others have um, giant ears uh, that they wrap themselves up in when they're cold, it's really actually quite cute. Um, others have their feet sort of twisted, flipped the wrong way around, and one tribe in particular, the Blemier as they're known, uh, have no head. Instead, their face and sometimes you know, uh, their facial features are set into their chest. What do we make of this? Did, in other ways, perfectly rational medieval people believe such things existed? Well, uh, I guess there are sort of two responses we could say to that. On the one hand, we could, again, kind of stereotype the Middle Ages as a kind of gullible world in which people really did think that that sort of thing existed, that there were on the fringes of the known kind of world these crazy monsters. I would say there are plenty of people in our world today, if you just expand from, say, Europe to Africa, from Earth to Mars, who think plenty of crazy things are happening out there. So the idea that people might be kind of have sincere beliefs in the paranormal is not an exclusively medieval idea. But I actually try and think about this a little more, in a slightly more focused way, and to say, well, actually, if we say that, you know, actually, you know, people in the Roman world and the medieval world are are relatively well, if not well-traveled, you know, the capacity for travel was not necessarily easy, but they're not stupid. So what does this figure out, or these figures, these races, seem to stand for? Actually, medicine, I think, is really helpful. So why might this race not have a head what did the head mean? And this is sort of what I trace in the chapter. What did the head mean for medieval people? And actually, when we dig down into some of the writings about the idea of the head in the Middle Ages, it's seen as this sort of um, extremely important and potent part of the body, kind of actually as it is today, okay? You would uh, chop it off if you know, um, someone uh, kind of had misbehaved. It was an extremely important political metaphor, the idea of the head of state, you know? And the body politic comes from a medieval idea. But also in terms of medicine, the 14th century um, physician and and anatomist Mondino da Luzzi, who writes um, a big treatise on the body from his base at the University of Bologna in Italy, says that the head is this primary part of the body because it's with this upright stature, this sort of tall, vertical, posturing head that mankind is, on the one hand, made in the image of the angels, made in the image of God, so he's tapping into a Christian tradition in which this sort of verticality is important. And secondly, that, that mankind has a um, effectively a dominion over the animals. So it's really actually through the head. The head is a sort of marker of good Christian uh, world, sort of upbringing and world, and also of civilization, really. And so we can see suddenly then in the figure of the Blemier, if you... Uh, chop off the head, if you remove the head and put it in their chest, they're suddenly ranked below to this kind of lower type of being. 
So there's a kind of interesting medical logic that we can read into into this kind of uh, crazy creature. And suddenly, if this is a symbol rather than something we literally think people thought was just round the corner if you sailed and ventured down the Nile, then in reality, we, we may actually start to see it as a slightly more subtle symbol. And I would say also an uncomfortable one, okay? This is, these are kind of uh, Western European authors thinking about Africa in quite a problematic way. So I think we have to think there's probably a lot more going on here in the image of the Blemier than just medical material. There are sort of uh, treatises that come out of the Islamic world which describe people of Northern Europe as kind of humorally extremely cold, their skin is so white as to almost be blue. You know, there's a, a racial stereotyping at work. And this is one of those difficult things, you know, uh, this book, indeed, the work of all my colleagues, you know, who's, who's kind of careful and, and sort of clever thoughts uh, I'm trying to channel and sort of present to people. You know, we're trying to, to rescue, rescue the opinion of the Middle Ages, but we're not trying to sugarcoat it, you know. There is a lot of deep divisions uh, in, kind of, uh, in kind of racial divisions along religious lines, along lines of gender. Uh, it, it is not an equal world in that sense. So we're not trying to sort of airbrush it. And I, I want to make that clear. But what's really interesting is that medicine gives us another angle with which to really understand how people uh, conceived of, of difference in terms of race or gender or uh, religion. You mentioned gender there, yeah. and you discuss a lot of interesting theories about the differences um, biologically between men and women mm-hmm. in the book. I wonder whether you could just outline a couple of those for us. They're certainly considered to be a kind of fundamental humoral difference between men and women. Men's bodies are discussed in the medical literature as being much hotter. They have, therefore, a a kind of propensity towards greater growth, both physical and, in a sense, what's sort of implied is intellectual. Um, And... Uh, you know, they, they are everything from being taller to being hairier to being smarter. In some ways, we could perhaps even, and I think this is maybe a bit provocative to say, but we could see women's bodies as not humorally necessarily too dissimilar to maybe that of a, of a child. Um, it's quite a kind of, um, and it's extremely unpleasant, but but fundamental difference. That is something that is not born in the Middle Ages. You know, it's inherited, and but but happily continued and propagated. So we have a kind of uncomfortable biological distinction between how men's bodies and women's bodies fundamentally even function. And actually, when you start, you know, this is perhaps no surprise, right? The the universities in which this, and kind of um, intellectual worlds in which these discourses are being formed, um, both um, medically, but also politically and religiously, are male-dominated spheres, right? It is, it is not in their political or religious interests to you know, enfranchise women in this sense. So we, again, you know, have to think about, again, the awkward reality that there's a fundamental understand the difference in the way that that these two different genders of bodies are are discussed and understood. So you conclude the book by a look at it it, with a chapter called Future Bodies, um, which looks at um, how we are finding out more and more about the medieval body. Perhaps you could just tell us a little about the new frontiers almost. Yeah. What's really interesting about this is that it's actually cutting edge Uh, amongst other things, medical technologies and biotechnologies of our modern moment that is not only pushing our kind of modern medical knowledge uh, forward, but is also becoming increasingly vital in our historical understanding of the past and of the medieval past as well. 
So, for example, um, I talk a little bit in the book about the Centre for Human Bioarchaeology at the Museum of London, um, uh, not far from where we are now, and uh, how, uh, uh, you know, constantly with the, as you can imagine, the kind of uh, crazy pace of building in, in big cities um, all around the world, bodies actual medieval bodies, to use the title of the book, are being uncovered all the time. And we can glean a huge amount of information just from these human remains with the help of all sorts of really interesting technologies. Think of, for example, a DNA analysis. You know, actually certain parts of um, certain very sort of dense bones in the skull or perhaps some, um, some pulp of uh, teeth can be analysed and are often found, or sometimes at least found, to contain fragments of what um, kind of um, paleo-osteologists call A-DNA, ancient DNA, which can then be sequenced and subsequently we can do a huge amount, we'll know a huge amount of the genetic makeup of the individual that we're dealing with, you know, um, their uh, gender, where their ancestors might have hailed from, whether they had any particular propensities towards certain um, uh, illnesses. We can tell from the quality and structure of their bones whether they had a particularly good or bad diet. Uh, you know, so huge amounts of information that we can suddenly start to really um, impressively and amazingly bring this world to, to life. Uh, the, and it's not just bodies, you know, it's, it's artworks too. Um, I finish with a really amazing example of a 13th century reliquary, a giant golden rich kind of encrusted casket reliquary of a saint no, um, a Belgian saint, Saint Amandus, who uh, uh, this reliquary is now in the Walters Art Museum in Baltimore. But to understand more about it, and um, conservators at the Walters uh, teamed up with a, a team of um, diagnostic radiologists at the University of Maryland Medical Center across town and literally took this casket, which, you know, which had formerly contained the relics of this saint, so almost like a kind of coffin-like casket, and put it into a giant CT scanner to actually physically you know, it's the same kind of you know thing that we see on kind of Grey's Anatomy or House or when we go to the hospital ourselves you know it's not modern bodies it's not only modern bodies that are being subjected to these really interesting subtle technologically sophisticated explorations it's also bodies of the medieval past that was Jack Hartnell Medieval Bodies is out now published by the Wellcome Collection OK, well, that's about all for today, but please do join us on Monday when Linda Yu will be reflecting on some of the greatest economists in history. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast.